Well, welcome to another day as we go through the Word of God, and I'm excited because we are going to wrap up our uh, expose, our uh, exegesis. We're going to wrap up the book of First Thessalonians with the second half of chapter 5. And we are going to be looking at verses 14 to 28 today. And uh, really looking forward to this. As a reminder, as always, if you've not subscribed to my channel, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, links are in the description below. Please do that. Like, comment, subscribe, and share as much as you possibly can. And let's get the good news out as much as you and I can. Now, the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, contains so much, and I would encourage you to watch these videos over uh, again more, more than once. And as we get to the end here of the first book of Thessalonians that Paul wrote to them, uh, just a reminder that he had set up the church in Thessalonica. He was there for only a few weeks, and then he was chased out of town. Uh, he then found out that they, the church was thriving, and they had a few questions, and so his book of 1 Thessalonians was in response to those initial questions. And he covers some of the most fundamental, basic Christian doctrine that every single Christ follower should know. And when, when the Apostle Paul says, I'm telling you not to be ignorant about these things, that should be a cue to us of, wow, I need to make sure I'm not ignorant, regardless of whether I'm a new Christian. Remember, a lot of these things he had taught to them uh, after only being a Christian for a few weeks. It's not something you have to mature into. It's something that you can learn straight away. Remember, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us understand what the Bible is talking about. So let's get into verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. To exhort is to tell somebody what they must do but without doing it uh, with a sharpness or a critical spirit. It's not rebuke, it's not condemnation, uh, but it's also not just a suggestion and it's not just hey, ad advice. It's urgent, it's serious, uh, but it's associated with comfort. So you could say it's a bit of a velvet brick to exhort somebody is to forcefully uh, tell them this is what you need to do, it's not just a suggestion, uh, but I'm comforting you as I'm telling you this. And Paul told the Thessalonians that there were four things that they needed to do for people. The first thing uh, was to take care of those who are unruly. Those who are unruly, they're out of order. And he uses actually a military word here to describe a soldier who breaks ranks, uh, marches out of step. Uh, that's that self-willed person who demands you know, to hold their own opinion. They're like, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I've got my own opinion. Uh, Paul said they have to be warned. Uh, that's the duty of, if you're a Christ follower, you have a duty to perform these four roles with new Christians. That's, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Now, the second one of those people who are faint-hearted. Uh, the, the, the literal Greek translation is small-souled, okay? S-O-U-L-E-D. As in, you know, their mind, will, and emotions are, are small. Uh, and, and that can either be through, through just nature, personality. It could be through experience. Uh, they, they might have just natural timidity. Uh, they could lack courage because of ex things they've been through. They need comfort and they need strength, uh, you know, to, be, to assist them and to be brought to them. And they 
they, they need something that's different than what the unruly need. Then there's the weak. The weak must be upheld, hold them up. They must be assisted with an eye to actually building their own strength instead of perpetuating their weakness. That's why there is no such thing as, as a continuous welfare position for, in the Bible's perspective. The Bible's always about providing welfare to help people get on their own feet. You can look at that from the Old Testament all through the New Testament. Uh, the poor uh, people in the Old Testament were given the opportunity to glean the fields of wheat. In other words, hey, you can have as much wheat as you can go and get. After we've done the harvest, we'll purposely leave some for you, but you have to go and pick it up yourself. We're not picking it up and delivering it to your door. You have to go and do it. And that is something, but those who are weak do have to be upheld. In other words, you, you, you have a, a responsibility to hold them up, but it's with an eye of helping them hold themselves up eventually. And then he says, be patient with all, because even though there's different approaches that need to be taken with different people, we have to be patient with everybody. And that's because true Christianity is shown by its ability to actually love and help the most difficult people we know. Uh, it's easy to minister to perfect good people. It's really difficult to do it to pain people who are pain in the neck. Uh, verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. A Christian should never seek revenge uh, or vengeance. We have to let God take our side and we have to pursue what is good for both ourselves and for all. So, which means we have to have a forgiving heart towards others um, because that's good for ourselves as well as it is being good for them. And then in these verses that we're about to read, uh, 16, 17, 18, uh, what we're about to read is Paul writing about more spiritual matters. Uh, but before those spiritual matters comes a very important teaching, and it's a teaching about right relationships. This is what he's talking about in verse 15, 14 and 15. And he's talking here about, listen, it's no good having this great relationship with God if you don't have a great relationship with people. Uh, Jesus made it very clear for us that we need to get things right with our fellow man before we come to worship God, Matthew 5. That's what we, we've got to get stuff right. Uh, and that's what Paul is outlining here. So let's go to verse 16. Rejoice always. What a great verse. Two words, rejoice always. Not only rejoicing in happy things, but also rejoicing in the sorrows also. Very difficult. A Christian can always rejoice because their, their joy isn't based on circumstance. It's based on God. And, and this is a very simple fact that our circumstances may change, but God never changes. Uh, Spurgeon said, I am bound to mention among the curiosities of the churches that I have known many deeply spiritual Christian people who have been afraid to rejoice. Some take such a view of religion that it is to them a sacred duty to be gloomy. Mm. If you're one of those Christians, stop it. Get some rejoicing. The Bible says rejoice always. Very simple. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Uh, we, we, we need to never stop. It, it, you, now, obviously, you can't bow your heads, close your eyes, fold your hands without ceasing, okay? Don't do that when you're driving. 
But those things that we do, they're just customs of prayer. They're actually not prayer itself. Prayer is that communication with God where we can really literally live every minute of every day in this constant flowing conversation backwards and forwards with God. And and there are some very valuable implications from this particular command. David Guzik says this. Here, Here are the implications. The use of the voice is not an essential element in prayer. The posture of prayer is not of primary importance. The place of prayer is not of of great importance. The particular time of prayer is not of great importance. A Christian should never be in a place where he cannot pray or could not pray. And that's what we have to do is just never look for reasons, excuses, justification for not praying. Always. Verse 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That is the opportunity that we have to continually lift up what God wants us to do. Um, I think about the fact that we don't give thanks for everything, but we give thanks in everything. We we recognize God's sovereign hand is in charge. We're, We're not subject to fate or just chance. And so there is something that we have an opportunity to say in everything give thanks. Now that doesn't mean in everything good give thanks, which is how we live. It's in everything give thanks. When things go wrong and you don't get the answer you want, you've been praying for that job and you don't get it, you can't get mad at God because if God's sovereign, then it must be the right thing for you to not get that job. So you've got to give thanks. God, I thank you that that obviously wasn't the right job, even though it was my dream job and it was the one thing I wanted. It's all I ever wanted to do was that. Uh, But I'm giving you thanks. Spurgeon said this, This is a gold quote. Put this, look, I don't have any tattoos, but if you're going to have one, have one of those. If you're going to put it on a ring, have this. This is amazing. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. I think that's amazing. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. And that, that means being grateful. Joy, prayer, leads us to being grateful, for this is the will of God. Uh, After every one of these exhortations, and remember exhortations, not an encouragement, it's a command, but done in love, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. We're told to do this, why? Because it is the will of God. We don't do it just because we want to or we don't want to. It's the will of God. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do you know we can quench the fire of the Spirit by our doubt, um, by our indifference, uh, whatever, uh, by our rejection? No. Uh, by being distracted from other people. Oh, like some, like some of you are squirrels, you know, squirrels. Like, oh, there's a nut. Oh, there's a nut. Oh, oh there's another nut. Oh, oh bury the nut. Oh, okay, I'm going to. Um, when people start to draw attention to themselves, it is a sure fire sign that the Holy Spirit is going to be quenched in them. Leon Morris, quench properly applies to the putting out of a flame of some sort, as that of a fire in Mark chapter 9 verse 48, or a lamp in Matthew 25 verse 8. This is the only place in the New Testament where it is used in a metaphorical sense. So, This command is based on a familiar image of the Holy Spirit as a fire or a flame. So it says, don't quench it, okay? Thinking about the Holy Spirit being a flame. And even though there's a sense in which uh, fire can't be created, 
if you like, then we can, we can start fire. Uh, we can provide the environment in which a fire can burn brightly. And that's what we should do for the Holy Spirit in us. But a flame can be extinguished when it's ignored and it's no longer tended. Uh, or when the flame is overwhelmed by something else, like a you know, strong breeze or whatever. Okay, verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Now, we understand that God speaks to and through his people today. And we learn to be open to his voice. Uh, but we also have to test prophecies uh, following the command to test all things. Pardon me. But we do not despise prophecies. We're never to despise prophecies. Now, it, it's very possible that prophecy was being despised in the church in Thessalonica because individuals were abusing the gift. Uh, there were people who were idle amongst those, you know, just, you know, lazy people. Uh, and maybe they spiritualized their idleness by prophecy. Oh, this is what God told me. God told me to do nothing. Um, there were people who were date setters. Oh, this is going to happen on this date, and this is going to happen on that date. And, and the and end time speculators in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, perhaps who backed up their speculations with supposed prophetic authority. Let me be very clear about the role of prophecy, Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's represented by the Hebrew word navi, N-A-V-I. And it was a primarily foretelling tool foretelling meaning predicting the future that's the that's what prophecy was primarily used for in the old testament in the new testament it's represented by the greek word prophesia which actually has a slightly different meaning uh, more so leaning towards forthtelling forthtelling is to make known in other words to to tell and bring forth what is already known by god so that it's less predicting things happening in the future, and more about revealing the mind of God. That's why a great test for prophecy in the New Testament church is for it to be encouraging, uh, exhorting. It should, should challenge people, but it should encourage them. It should lift them up, uh, and it should always be wrapped in love because the greatest of these is love. And uh, it sh that, that, that should be the edification of the church is something that is primarily uh, what God uses the gift of prophecy for in the New Testament context. Now, he goes on to say, verse 21, test all things, hold fast what is good. So this is, this is the requirement. Every uh, evil and, de and deception can show itself even in a very spiritual setting. So it's important that Christians test all things. And when the test has been made according to the standard of God's word and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, then we hold fast to what is good. Apply the test, whatever's left over, hold fast to what is good. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil, everything. When the testing has been made, any aspect of evil must be rejected in our lives, which includes the evil that can come with a very spiritual image. Oh, well, I just have to do that because that's just what I have been called to do. That's what God called me to do. Um, no. Abstain from every form of evil. Okay, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself, so he's getting to his conclusion here. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. David Guzik said this about this verse. The idea 
behind the word sanctify is to set apart, to make something different and distinct, breaking old associations and forming a new association. For example, a dress is a dress, but a wedding dress is sanctified, set apart for a special glorious purpose. God wants us to be set apart to him. So the emphasis here is on the word completely, okay? Sanctify you completely. The, the adjective uh, completely means, it actually comes from a Greek word, hololasis, uh, and it only occurs here. It's the only time it occurs in the New Testament is right here in this passage. It's a compound, in other words, a joining of two Greek words, holos, which means whole, and entire, and telos, which means the end. And it's basically uh, saying uh, something that is wholly attaining to the end, reaching the intended goal. So that's what we're meant to do with sanctification, reach the intended goal. Uh, now, Paul says here, that uh, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Paul made it clear that sanctifi sanctification is God's work in us. It's not what we do, it's his work in us. In all that he told the Christian to do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, Paul never intended that they do those things in their own power. Remember, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Consistent message of the Apostle Paul. More Christians are defeated because they rely on their own strength than on account of any demonic or satanic attack whatsoever. They just do it because they, they, they fail because they try to do it in their own strength. And the devil's just watching back going, I didn't even need to use any resources to stop them. And they just did it themselves. They wore themselves out. Didn't rely on the Holy Spirit. See, Paul's use of spirit, soul, and body in this passage uh, has, has led many people to develop a certain view. It's called a trichotomist view. Trichotomist view of man. Believing that, that man is made up of three dis distinct parts. Spirit, soul, and body. Now, this view has some merit, but it also has problems. Uh, because one might say that in Mark 12, verse 30, that uh, man's nature is divided into heart, soul, mind, and strength. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 divides man's nature into two parts, body and spirit. Uh, in some passages, the terms soul and spirit seem to be synonymous. Uh, other times they seem to be distinct, and, and, and it's kind of hard to define them precisely. Uh, it seems that there are actually three different aspects to our human person. But the specific meaning of spirit or soul has to be determined by the context of, of what we're reading. Uh, the great Greek scholar Dean Alford uh, described the spirit and the soul as this. The spirit, the pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, is the highest and distinctive part of man, the immortal. The soul is the lower or animal soul, containing the passions and desires which we have in common with the brutes, but which is in us ennobled and drawn up by the spirit. So being the, the inner immaterial part of man that you know, can exist apart from spiritual life, the soul connects with the world through the senses of our physical body. It connects with God through faith, which, which might be called the, you know, the sense of the Holy Spirit, that, that feeling that I'm sensing the Holy Spirit, I'm feeling the Holy Spirit. Uh, David Guzik, because the soul and spirit 
both have reference to the non-material part of mankind, they are easily confused. Often an experience intended to build up the spirit only blesses the soul. There is nothing wrong with soulish excitement and blessing, but there is nothing in it that builds us up spiritually. This is why many Christians go from one exciting spiritual experience to another, but they never really grow spiritually because the ministry they receive is soul-ish. Um, we may receive this order as inspired when he says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved. Uh, there's some inspiration here because God intends there to be a hierarchy within our human person or, and it's ordered first with the spirit, then the soul and finally with the body. Now, it's not to say that the body is inherently evil. God saves our body as much as he saves our spirit and our soul. And the body definitely has a, a, an important purpose and role in the plan of salvation, which is also to be resurrected into a new body. But God designed us to live after the order of spirit soul, body, instead of body, soul, spirit. Uh, that's, and that's the way the world sees it. The world, the, non-Christians see body, soul, spirit. Christians see spirit, soul, body, okay? Uh, completely the opposite. And, and we, are, we, need to, we need to get this, the needs of the body and submit them to the needs of the soul. And the needs of the body and the soul need to submit to the needs of the spirit. In other words, there is a chain of submission. The spirit's mission is first, then the soul's mission, then the body's mission. Whereas the world would say, no, the mission that the body wants to establish, that's what comes first, and then my soul and my spirit come into alignment with that. So I'm always pursuing what my body wants. God says, no, word of God says, no, 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 spirit first, spirit first. So that's how God works in us. Now, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Paul was an apostle, and the Thessalonian church was made up of young Christians, and Paul knew that he still needed their prayers, so he says to them, pray for us. Uh, God requires us to pray for those who are ministers, servants, of God for the sake of the ministry. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, the idea is that Paul wants those who read this letter to, to greet all the Christians as they're reading it uh, in Thessalonica on his behalf. And if he was there in person, what would he do? He would greet all the brethren with a holy kiss himself, but seeing as he want, wasn't there, he said, I'm gonna send this greeting through this letter. Now, at this time, the sexes would have been segregated in the assembly and the men would have been you know, kissing the men and the women would have been kissing the women, but not a passionate kiss. It's a, it's a kiss on the cheek uh, and it, it's a sign of greeting. Verse 27, uh, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Now, Paul uses a very strong phrase here and, and for good reason because it was important that this epistle be uh, read among all Christians, which is why you and I are reading in the Word of God today. And it's a very unusual statement, and it's, this statement is unique in Paul's letters, because Paul wanted to make sure that the church heard this letter firsthand. 
uh, and not through some intermediaries who might misstate what his message was. Uh, I don't know, maybe perhaps Paul feared that people would look up passages in the letter uh, that spoke to the issues that they were interested in the most and then ignore the other parts, which is exactly what most Christians do with the Bible today. They just read the verses. They're like, oh, I like that verse. I'm going to know that verse. Oh, I know. oh, the other stuff. I don't understand what's around it. So, oh, I just like that one there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I like I can do all things. I like that one. Oh, the rest of Philippians 4, not quite sure what that means. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing to try and bring light to rightly dividing the word of truth so that you can understand the entire word of God. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Nearly all of Paul's letters begin and end with the idea of grace. And it's basically true of almost everything that God says to you and I, because grace is God's unmerited favor. That's what it is. Uh, It's his his unmerited love. It's his unmerited acceptance of us because of who he is and because of what Jesus has done. So grace means that we can stop working to, a, to try and get God's love, and we can just start receiving it. And it's appropriate that this letter, remember, this is the first preserved letter that we have that Paul ever wrote to any church in the New Testament. Uh, this letter is full of love, encouragement, instruction, and it ends on a note of grace. They, uh, James Denny said this, Whatever God has to say to us begins and ends with grace. All that God has been to man in Jesus Christ is summed up in it. His gentleness and his beauty, his tenderness and his patience. All the holy passion of his love is gathered up in grace. What more could one soul wish for another than that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ should be with it? What a way to end 1 Thessalonians. What do I observe from uh, just this last part of chapter 5? Well, uh, I love how God has left us with very clear instructions in the Bible, with, with, with statements that don't allow any conjecture uh, or misinterpretation. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. I mean, look, you, you just can't mess with those things and try to come up with a reason why you shouldn't. And so I, I love it that there's clarity in the Word of God. And I also love the constant message of grace through the Bible that, that starts with God and his graciousness in, in, in creation with what he gave Adam and Eve before they even deserved anything to what he gives to you and I through Christ. And I love that the full experience of Christ is what allows us to have the full experience of true biblical grace. And that's what I'm very thankful for. And that's what I observed today. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single person watching this video today. Just encourage them, lift them up. Uh, Allow them, Lord, if it's been a long time since they've had a time to rejoice. I pray, Lord, allow them to say today, I will rejoice in you. I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be glad in him. Lord, and I know that that's not easy for some who are going through very difficult times right now. Some of them are facing life-threatening illnesses of their life on this planet. But God, I pray, Lord, that they would rejoice of whether they receive their healing here or they receive their healing in heaven, that there is something to rejoice, which is that they will spend their eternity with you in heaven. I know that's difficult, Lord, but God, give them peace. 
give them strength, give them the, the ability to see that your sovereign hand is over their lives. God, I pray that each one of us would have the opportunity to pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks, Lord. I, I pray that we would find a way to give thanks in everything because of the way that you give thanks for us in everything we do, and yet we constantly let you down. We're constantly not doing what you ask, and yet you constantly give us things we don't deserve. You constantly love us. You never take away the gift of salvation. And so, God, you have modeled grace for us, so let us be models of it to others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.